Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is serious business this morning. I don't see any way around texts like these. They are a, <clears throat> an unavoidable iceberg in the ocean of your revelation. And if we are to be faithful to Scripture, we are wise not to pretend that they're not there. Lord, we, we love the Bible. We love the fact that you have communicated who you are to us in a book. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not pulled any punches. You have told us how things are. You have, you who know the end from the beginning have, have warned us about the ending. And so I, I pray now that you would help us, Lord, as a congregation to be quick to hear and ready to frame our thinking after a passage like this. Lord, may what the Bible says about the return of our Lord Jesus make an indelible imprint on our congregation this morning as we launch out into a season, a study of biblical prophecy. Lord, we need it. Come now and teach us about the days ahead, we pray, for the glory of Jesus, for the building up of your church, and for the ingathering, Lord, of all of your sheep who have yet to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone agreed and said? Amen. This morning, we begin week two of our six-week exploration of the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. The series is entitled, Concerning the Coming of Our Lord. The topic is biblical prophecy. We said last week that biblical prophecy is history written in advance. Some of you are history buffs, aren't you? I am too. You enjoy looking backward and examining what's come to pass. I'm nuts for history, truth be told, especially truth history. Uh, sorry, church history and truth history. <laughs> church history in particular. Some of you are history buffs. And if I'm speaking to you, then you are ripe for the study of biblical prophecy. Because biblical prophecy is history written in advance. Biblical prophecy is also an essential component to a larger doctrinal category we mentioned last week known as eschatology. Eschatology is just what the Bible says about the future what the Bible says about the future. So let's say you're not a history person, but maybe you're a numbers person. Maybe you've just got a thing for statistics. Well, then I've got a couple of statistics for you. You may recall that last week we said that roughly 27% of the content of the Bible deals with prophecy. According to one reliable tally, there are 4,017 predictive prophecies in Holy Scripture. 4,017. That's over one quarter. That is, that is very, very close to one-third of this book is history written in advance. Now, as we move into the days ahead as a congregation of our study of 2 Thessalonians and then eventually into our study of Daniel, which, Lord willing, will begin the second week of September, we will be entering a storehouse that is 
filled to overflowing with treasure. Over the next season of life together as a church, we will be handling some of the most rare and exquisite and valuable gems in the Bible. And not only are these truths extremely precious, they are extraordinarily practical. You're going to want to know this stuff. And as we tackle it all from what the Bible says about the seven-year tribulation to what the Bible says about the thousand-year reign of Christ, to what the Bible says about the rapture, to what the Bible says about the Antichrist, from the role of the church in the days ahead, to what the Bible specifically and clearly says about the role of the people and the place, the physical geography of Israel in the days ahead. We will do our best to be faithful to Scripture, to leave no stone unturned. The Bible has much to say about the days ahead. But of all the truths that we just touched on, of each of the treasures in the storehouse of biblical prophecy, we have not yet mentioned the crown jewel. To change the metaphor just slightly, biblical prophecy is a tapestry, a tapestry of spectacular truths, but the glorious appearing of King Jesus is the centerpiece. If you were to understand nothing else about what the Bible says about the days ahead, understand this. Take this on board today. Biblical prophecy is a, is a tapestry of spectacular truth, but the glorious appearing of King Jesus is the centerpiece. And the Bible repeatedly and relentlessly reminds us that Jesus is coming back. You believe that? I believe that. If you're a member of this church, I sincerely hope you believe that. Article 9 of the EFCA Statement of Faith clearly and unflinchingly affirms the bodily, personal return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Every New Testament author teaches it, in some cases, over and over again. Even Jude, one of the smallest books in the New Testament, mentions it four times. We can't escape this teaching, nor would we want to. Our passage this morning is one of those places. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-10 to 10, features some of the clearest and most unambiguous declarations concerning the second coming of Christ in all the Bible. Now the truth of the return of Jesus, to go back to the treasure analogy, is like a diamond. It's like a multifaceted diamond. And it's so brilliant that it is impossible to do justice to it, certainly in one sermon, even in six verses of Scripture. There's more that we can and will say about the return of our Lord than what's here before us. We can say more than 2 Thessalonians. However, let us not make the mistake of saying less than what 2 Thessalonians affirms. Over the next season of study together as a church, we're going to familiarize ourselves hopefully with a number of, of helpful tools for interpreting biblical prophecy and passages like this one that deal with the second coming of Christ. One of those interpretive tools that you want in your toolbox is something that's known as prophetic perspective. Sometimes it's called telescoping or foreshortening. The, the idea is this, that when dealing with prophecy, authors of Scripture will frequently speak of what's to come 
in a rapid-fire sequence of events that may, in some cases, be separated by years and centuries, even millennia. And sometimes they themselves don't even know that this reality is at work. Think about the way that Peter talked about the Old Testament prophets. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So, in the Old Testament, you read about the sufferings and glories of Christ as if they're one single event. And what Peter and we have come to understand is that the future glory of Christ in its fullness is still yet to come, 2,000 years down the road from his sufferings. So there's, in other words, once again, more than we can say about the return of Jesus in Second Thessalonians than what this paragraph offers. This paragraph doesn't mention the tribulation, the antichrist, the rapture, the salvation of Israel. We're telescoping right to the end, to the final moment. Dipping into the midpoint of verse 7, Paul uses this phrase, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You see that? Halfway through verse 7, your outline and your sermon begins with six words. When the Lord Jesus is revealed. That word revealed is one that you've probably heard before. Apocalypse. Does that sound familiar? Apocalypse. It means a, a public unveiling. Something hidden that's now become visible and manifest and obvious. So, not telling you anything you don't know, but, but currently we, we don't see Jesus visibly tangibly, personally in this world. But our passage affirms today that one day we certainly will. And depending upon your relationship to Him, this is either going to be bad news or best news. I'm ashamed of how simple this outline is. I wish this were more intricate or ornate. The cookies are are truly on the bottom shelf this morning. So let's start with the first of these realities. First point today. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, for some, in fact, many, this is going to be really bad news. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, for some, this is going to be really bad news. We'll start in verse 6, we'll read verse 7, and then camp out in verses 8 and 9. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Don't ever say you didn't hear it from this pulpit. There is a judgment coming. 
There's a judgment coming. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There's a judgment coming. You say, a judgment on whom? And verse 6 answers that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So one way to conceive of this judgment is that this judgment to come is requital, it is payback, it is revenge, it's affliction poured out on those who afflict the church. Verse 6 is anything but vague. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Again, Romans 12, 19 speaks of God in Christ as an avenger. Avenger. My son and I went to go see the Avengers yesterday for the second time. You think our culture is not interested in this? Jesus is an avenger. And he is pouring out affliction on those who afflict us. You say today, well, no one's afflicting me. Then I hope you listen carefully to this point. Last week, we considered three reasons to thank God for the local church. You remember that? How does Paul describe the church? In verses 3 and 4 of this letter, he says, Faith growing. Love increasing, afflictions enduring. Faith growing, love increasing, afflictions enduring. And these afflictions are adversities, they're troubles and hardships that one endures simply by virtue of their profession of faith in Jesus. And you say, yes, I profess faith in Christ, but I certainly don't experience any affliction on His account. To which I say, your version of the Christian faith is foreign to the pages of the New Testament. And the version of the Christian faith that most believers have experienced in this nation over the last several generations is entirely foreign to the New Testament. And if I'm not mistaking, the days to come, we will begin to look more like the New Testament. This idea of no affliction for my profession of faith in Christ is alien to biblical Christianity. Consider 2 Timothy 3.12. 2 Timothy 3.12 assures us that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be, if you know Him. And the revelation of Jesus Christ will spell relief to you who are afflicted for your faith in Christ. A truth that we'll examine more closely in point two. But here in point one, we can use this as an opportunity to examine if we ourselves are in the faith. And we said that the coming judgment is an afflicting of those who afflict us, which actually frees us tremendously. The church of Jesus Christ does not need to be about the business of retributive justice. Amen? In fact, in our personal dealings with others, we're forbidden from doing such. John Calvin said that Christ will be a most strict avenger. There's our word again. 
of the injuries which the wicked inflict upon us. Christ will be a most strict avenger of those who afflict us. Trust me, our sense of justice is a faint echo of Jesus Christ's. How severe will the affliction be? You will not be able to measure with existing technology. Verse 8 speaks of Christ inflicting a vengeance of flaming fire. Verse 9 goes on to say, They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Puritan pastor Matthew Henry observes, They did sin's work and must receive sin's wages. They shall be always dying and yet shall never die. Their misery will run parallel with the line of eternity. It must needs be so since the punishment is inflicted by an eternal God. To to which I would only add that it must be so for the crime is against an eternal God. Any of our sins are a sin against the eternal God that echo into eternity. His sense of justice is infinite. That's why hell is forever. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The duration of this affliction is the maximum penalty. Eternity. Well, that's the duration. What about the degree? What I mean is, Will the punishment be the same degree, the same amount, proportion for all? And I believe that the answer is no. Part of why I believe that is the way that the recipients of this judgment are described in verse 8. Look with me there. These individuals are described as those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, at that point, you have an opportunity before you to make a decision about what's being referenced here. Whether or not these are two different groups of people, which is entirely possible given the grammar here, or a single group of people, it could be either view, there's no doubt in my mind that the judgment of God will fit the degree of the culpability of the one being judged. Speaking of his return, Jesus says in Luke 12, verses 48, 47 and 48, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Did you know Jesus said that? Jesus is talking about relative degrees of beating when he returns. That's Jesus talking. The judgment of God at the revelation of Christ will be anything but unfair. But it will also be overdue. It is only God's mercy that delays his judgment. But a day is coming, friends, and and it may not be far off. It may not be far off. Charles Simeon once said, We cannot behold the state of the world around us 
but we must feel a need of some future day of retribution. And you know what? Simeon wrote those words at the beginning of the 19th century. He hadn't seen a world war. He hadn't seen a holocaust. He hadn't seen our nation in the 21st century. He died in 1836. And he looked for a day of future retribution. Those words were true in the 19th century. They are that much more true at the beginning of the 21st. I hope this motivates you with reference to your list of five. Here's a practical application. You've heard this from me before, but world-famous magician and atheist Penn Gillette made the comment that he doesn't respect people who don't proselytize. Did you know that? He has a low opinion of Christians who won't evangelize. He said... If you were standing alongside a road and an 18-wheel truck was bearing down on you and you didn't see it, but I did, there comes a point when I tackle you, right? How much would I have to hate you not to warn you about that truck? And Penn Jillette, atheist, says, this is more important than that. You won't evangelize me? When the Lord Jesus is revealed... For some, this is going to be really bad news. Second point today. When the Lord Jesus is revealed for others, this is going to be the best news ever. When the Lord Jesus is revealed for others, this is going to be the best news ever. Now, shockingly, incredibly, inexplicably, there's another class of persons here mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's another sort of person for whom the revelation of Jesus Christ will most emphatically not be bad news. It will be the beginning of the very best news. Take a look with me once again at our passage this time beginning in verse 5. Then we'll take a stop at verse 7. And then we'll end at the beginning of verse 10. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. This is evidence of verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Verse 7. To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, Verse 10, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at. Now, here's what's so remarkable about this passage. Notice, this is the same event. We are in the exact same paragraph dealing with the exact same future moment in history that has not yet occurred, namely the apocalypse, the revelation, the glorious appearing the second coming of Jesus. For one class of people, this will be awful news. For another class of people, this will be awesome news. The second coming of Christ will thrill the second group as much as it threatens the first group. At the return of Jesus, just as surely as there will be those who will do anything they can to avoid him, there will be another group right alongside prepared to admire him. What's the explanation for this? This prizing and praising of Jesus. For some people, 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, again, let's, let's get our verbs together here. Verse 7, they will feel relieved. Christ will be glorified in them. Verse 10, he will be marveled at by them. Verse 10, I hope this puzzles you. Because if you were to ask, what's the qualitative difference between these two classes of people? The honest answer would be, not much. Both groups of people are mere human beings. Both groups of people are made in God's image. Both groups are also indwelt with a propensity towards sin and selfishness that is suicidal, that causes them to rebel against and chafe under the sovereignty of their Creator. That's true of both groups. So what's the relationship between these two people, groups of people, or we might ask the question, What's the relationship between what's true of the second group, those three realities in particular? Relief, glorification, marveling. How do you explain that? Over sabbatical, I stumbled upon a book at the West Tonka Library with a really intriguing title. Here's the title of the book. The Utter Relief of Holiness. You know, the religion section isn't very big over there. It's tiny. It doesn't take long. And I just looking through it. And as soon as I saw it, it snagged my attention. The what? The utter relief of holiness. So I took it off the shelf. The author is John Eldridge. Perhaps you've read him before. He's a rather popular author. I... Truth in advertising, I didn't read the whole book. In fact, I didn't even finish the first chapter. So I can't vouch for its contents. But I can vouch for this sentence. You ready? In the utter relief of holiness, John Eldridge writes, This is how most of us live our entire lives. We hide what we can. We work on what we feel is redeemable, and we despise the rest. End quote. Rarely have I read a single sentence that so named the human condition and quite frankly just walked up and down the avenues of my soul. I'm going to repeat that sentence for you. This is how most of us live our entire lives. We hide what we can. We work on what we feel is redeemable. How's that for an anti-gospel? We work on what we feel is redeemable. And what you can't do anything about, you just hate. You just despise. Most of us live our entire lives that way. I agree. And yet the title of the book is The Utter Relief of Holiness. Not the sheer trauma of holiness. Not the frightening prospect of holiness, the utter relief of holiness. The Bible says, and this passage indicates, that the revelation of Jesus Christ, for some, will spell relief to them. Is what some folks will be thinking. Jesus will be magnified by them. 
He will be glorified in them. They will be marveling at Him. So what's the difference? What's the decisive factor? Because each of us, within the sound of my voice today, is in point of fact in one of these two groups. One final point today. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, the difference between this being bad news or best news is whether or not you believe the good news. That's the only difference. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, the difference between this being bad news or best news is whether or not you believe the good news. Please look with me one more time at our passage, uniquely at the end of verse 10. And we ask this question. Who, who will be relieved at the coming of Jesus? In whom will Christ be glorified? Who are these folks who will marvel at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 10 shouts it, doesn't it? All who have believed. That's it. He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at. Among who? All who have believed. I don't know about you. I love the gospel. I just love the gospel. Because the more time I spend with Jesus, I turned 17 years old in the Lord this past summer. The more I look within me for some reason for him to save me, I'm not finding it. I am wrestling with the same old sins. To a large degree, I disappoint myself daily and you, likely. He's not impressed with me. He's not impressed with you. I love the gospel. It doesn't say, though, that Christ will be grant relief and be glorified in and marveled at people who have earned it. Salvation doesn't work that way. Holiness is not the ground of our salvation. It's the unavoidable result of it. Saved by grace through faith in Jesus. The gospel isn't good advice. It's good news. He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Christians aren't just religious folks. They're redeemed folks. So, which group are you in this morning? Is holiness, is the revelation of Jesus Christ going to be utter relief for you? Or is it going to be the beginning of absolute divine retribution for you? Make no mistake, both groups have earned his retribution. But the second of these groups has looked away from themselves to the Lord Jesus. There's a cross under that screen. And it happened on the cross 2,000 years ago where the retributive justice of God fell not on us or any mere human being. It fell on His Son. It is not God's heart of hearts for the wicked to die. It is God's heart of hearts that they turn from their sins and be united with His Son, the Lord Jesus, by grace through faith. Do you believe the good news of Jesus Christ this morning? When the Lord Jesus is revealed, 
the difference between this being bad news or best news is whether or not you believe the good news. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? This is the bedrock of this church. Turn away from your sin. Rely on Him. Understand that He came for people just like you right where you are. He loves you just as you are. He loves you enough to not leave you as you are. That faith will produce sanctification. It will produce love. It will produce holiness. So much so that when that process completes itself at the manifestation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, you'll feel relieved. You won't feel threatened. You'll feel thrilled. Believe it today. Biblical prophecy is a tapestry of spectacular truths, but the glorious appearing of King Jesus is the centerpiece. History is going somewhere, and it's headed to this return, the return of the King. When the Lord Jesus is revealed for some, this is going to be really bad news. When the Lord Jesus is revealed for others, this is going to be the best news ever. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed, when it all comes down, the difference between this being bad news or best news is whether you believe the good news. It's, it's woven right into the fabric of this paragraph. Salvation by grace through faith. Next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. If you have been contemplating baptism upon profession of faith and yet have not expressed that desire to your pastors, please come to see me or Seth this week. We would be all kinds of anxious to talk with you about that, explore that possibility with you. One week from today, we'll also examine another segment of the rich tapestry of biblical prophecy as we consider what the Bible says about the man of lawlessness, about the Antichrist himself. It's a topic that in 10 years' time, I have not once preached on or taken up. So I hope you pray for me this week. And I hope you turn up next Sunday and join us then. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are a hopeful people. We believe that the king is going to return. Lord, if the apostolic church 2,000 years ago anticipated the soon return of Jesus, if they, if they lived in light that, that he could come at any moment, how much closer are we today, 2,000 years down the line? Lord, I pray that we would be people who lift our eyes and look for your return. And that, that soon return of Jesus would have all kinds of practical, pragmatic results in our lives. Lord Jesus, chief among which, that we would be people eager to get the news of our King out. I pray, Father, that you would make us an increasingly evangelistically intense church. One thing we know that Jesus says about the last days is that the love of many will grow cold. May it never be so in this church. May we grow in our passion, in our fervency to see people come to faith in Jesus because he's coming soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.